Hi, my name is Nicole Danos. I'm an assistant professor of biology at the University of San Diego. And Femtech to me is the opportunity to ask scientific questions as a scientist about women's health and wellness, and then translate those into science-based solutions to um, our needs. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Nicole Danos, an integrative biologist by training, currently working as an assistant professor at a primarily undergraduate institution, the University of San Diego. Dr. Danos was pregnant while researching in a physiology lab, and it got her thinking what physiological changes were happening in her own body. She was shocked. Unfortunately, we wouldn't be in Femtech, but at the time she was. She was shocked to see the scarcity of data on the basic biology of the female body during pregnancy and lactation. Her current research program engages undergraduate students and addresses this gap in particular, how muscles and tendons change at these physiological stages. She's an advocate for more basic research on the female body, in particular with respect to movement, biomechanics, and exercise. Learn more about Nicole's research at NicoleDanosPhD.net. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Nicole, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you. You are one of my fellow scientists and academic researchers studying the basic, you know, anatomy of, you know, uh, of females. So you are, you know, one of the many pieces of me. I'm an investor, a founder, but I sure am a scientist. And so I love meeting other scientists as passionate as I am about women's health. Same, same. It's always great to nerd out with somebody who appreciates not only the what it can do for women out there, but just to share science of it, you know, the incredible knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I always tell people I love Femtech because it, for three main reasons. The first is that it's an activist move. We're fighting for the equality in women's health. Uh, second is that it's science-based. And so the nerd in me just loves learning about hormones and our body changes and our bodies are just so incredible. The third is that it's a trillion dollar industry and we can make a ton of money if we just talk about vulvas more. So those are my three reasons, but science is in there. <laughs> I love it. I want to try to talk about other things more as well. Vulvas definitely need to be talked about more. Definitely. Well, we always love to kick off every interview learning more about our guests on their more on a personal level. So tell us a little bit more about where you're from, where you're calling us from today. Like, did you ever anticipate studying female physiology? Like, kind of give us your little career trajectory here. Yeah, it's it was an interesting arc that brought me here. Um, I'm originally from a small island country of Cyprus. So I grew up um, speaking Greek. And I came to the U.S. almost by accident. I got a a Fulbright scholarship when I was 21 to go to college. 
And I sat down in the Fulbright Commission's office with a fat book of all the universities and colleges in the U.S. And I flipped through and I asked for paper applications from every college that had a four and a half out of five stars in marine biology. Because that's what I wanted to do at the time. I mean, you're from an island. That's not too far (laughs) off of an idea, right? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, And I landed at UC Berkeley which was a great school, but I had no idea. Right. And, um, um, they have a marine uh, biology focus, but it was not their strength. Their Mm -hmm. strength is studying organismal and integrative biology. That means studying the whole organism uh, in the context of its environment and in the context of its evolutionary history. And so there's lots of layers there to what you're going to study in terms of biology. And so that's where I, I got my, my feet wet in terms of science. I got some research experience. I studied um, sharks. I studied uh, things called Sicilians that are worm-like things, amphibians. Um, what else did I study? Eels, all kinds of weird things. And I went on to do a PhD in fish swimming mechanics. Oh, my God. That's so specific. I know, right? <laughs> But the the idea there was like, how do fish do this? Why are there fish of all these different shapes? What does it allow them to do that's different than other fish? And the the sort of the impetus for it is, can we mimic some of the things that fish are doing in the robots that we design? Ah, all right. So it's not just like because we love fish and we love sushi. It's more like what can we create in our human lives that are mimicking something in the animal kingdom? That they figured right. out for millennia and like we might as well like instead of recreate the wheel, use what evolution provided. Exactly. So we ended up learning some really base, basic physics about solid fluid interactions and that sort of thing. Um, and again, I'm not going to knock down the just knowledge for knowledge sakes. And we'll get back to this a couple of times in this interview, I think, because it's very hard to know what you don't know. right yeah and so unless we enjoy discovery then there's no way for us to know the limits of our knowledge Mm. and so i am a big believer in discovery-based science so okay so i was studying fish then i moved to rats because their muscular system is actually a lot simpler than a fish in terms of mechanics and physics. Um, and that's when I became pregnant. And while I was studying rats, what we were doing is we were looking at animals that are really, really old and all their connective tissues are very stiff because they're old. So all their tendons are extra stiff. And we were asking the question, was this, what does that mean for how the muscle that's attached to the tendon functions? Hmm. And what does that mean for the whole animal that needs to move still? So I'm pregnant here, walking around with this giant belly in the lab doing experiments. And everyone's telling me, oh, you're you're pregnant. Now all of your tendons are going to be super lax, super soft. Um, you be, need to be careful. Your back is going to hurt. Your feet are going to get bigger. Um, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds really interesting as a scientist. <laughs> yeah. Let yeah. me go find those papers. And see what actually happens. 
and I'm looking for papers and I'm looking for papers and I'm looking for papers. And guess what? There's not any study on what happens to skeletal muscles and their tendons during pregnancy. Wow. And I was just floored. I was floored. I was really upset, actually. Because I'm like, you how are you taking care of me? How is the medical establishment taking care of me when we don't have this very basic information about what's happening to my body? Mm-hmm. We have a lot of information on what's happening to my baby, on what's happening to uh, hormones, but what does that fa- how does that affect the rest of my body, which is not involved in directly cur- caring and protecting the baby? We don't know anything. It's almost like there's this assumption that you're just the vessel, right? And the priority is on the newborn versus the vessel's health. Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm. And then at the same time, I started noticing all these reports of female athletes who had had babies and came back. And um, a couple of things happened. Some of them were breaking their own records after having become mothers. Oh, which is kind of incredible because these professional athletes are already working at the peak of that, what their body can do. <laughs> and now they have a kid too. So you'd think that they'd have less training time, less support. Yeah. Less focus, right? Less focus, yeah. less time, less energy. More worries, a lot of more anxiety. Lactating. Yeah. <sighs> there was this one woman I'll never forget. Um, the story of her, but I do forget her name. I'm fortunate. Um, <laughs> she did an ultra marathon. That was both men and women. It lasted for over a week, this marathon. My God. She came first, beat the next person who was a man by 10 hours. And all the while she was stopping to pump milk because she had an 18 month old that she was breastfeeding. Wow. Yeah. So your scientific brain, you're like, um, hello. And by the way, may I ask were your colleagues like telling you these things? Cause I've heard that too, right? Like, oh, you know, like you might sprain your ankle more easily. Your, your ankles are like, you know, wibbly wobbly. And that's cause you're pregnant. Like, is that just these like kind of myths that we've just assumed that we've been proven out or were they, were they not that we're ignorant, right? Like we were assuming somebody did the methods, right? But uh, did you find that fig- figured out? Like, no, it's, there's no scientific proof of this. Yes, I did, unfortunately. Okay. And the problem came when I started writing grants to do this work myself. Mm. And I was trying to demonstrate that this is a problem. Not knowing is a problem. But we also never recorded whether there is a problem. Like nobody... Did the systematic work of saying pregnant women sprain their ankles more frequently. Yeah. Or pregnant women, when they exercise, experience these problems. Mm -hmm. There is just no comprehensive study like that. Or advantages like your fish thing, right? Like you're studying the fish to advance submarines, right? Like what could we learn about pregnant women or post-pregnancy that's helping these athletes that then therefore could influence training? Yes. So that was, that was very discouraging. So, okay. One of the projects that a student and I set out to do was just a a really basic survey. What kind of problems do you, uh, do women experience during and after pregnancy? Mm -hmm. So that's work that we have ongoing, but if anybody wants to jump in, please, there's so much work to be done here. 
Um, so that's skeletal muscle and tendons. That is the thing that I was studying at the time. But again, remember, I was also studying fluid mechanics, solid fluid mechanics before I moved on to muscles. Mm-hmm. And um, when I had my baby, I was also breastfeeding. And the whole physiological process just blew my mind. oh my god i love scientists we find like things fascinating (laughs) it is just (laughs) it is it was so fascinating for so many reasons right i'm an anatomist so i understood how much remodeling went into the breast tissue that i had Mm -hmm. to produce milk um and how this milk was delivered to my baby and how uh the tissue was getting feedback from my baby to continue the remodeling and the production of the milk. Mm. And um, that's when I wanted to study breastfeeding at the same time. And so I contacted a person who is a specialist in infant feeding um, mechanics. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they do experiments um, visualizing uh, the fluid inside the baby's mouth uh, to better understand healthy and unhealthy uh, swallowing. Okay. So that's a big problem for infants that are born with ne- neurological defects is if they don't swallow correctly, um, they can get fluid in their lungs and develop serious complications. Now, we also know that breastfeeding is a lot healthier for the baby because one of the ways in which it's healthier is not just the content, but it's the mechanics of feeding. Mm get a lot less milk per unit time when they breastfeed than when they get a bottle. Because think of the bottle. The baby bottle is just a giant vessel that's hard on the outside, not soft like the breast, and it just flows milk freely. Yeah. The breast, you hold it upside down, it does not flow freely milk unless there's a baby suckling on it. Uh Uh-huh. So the the mechanics of what the baby must do to get milk is very different. Hmm. So all the muscles of the baby in the mouth that are developing under these conditions are very different than what when it's feeding on a bottle. Yeah. Kind of like but a anyway. butterfly getting out of its cocoon. Like you can't help the butterfly by cutting open the cocoon because then you hurt its wings. Right. And so it's kind of like the, what I'm hearing is like the suckling and the swallowing, all that is actually part of the development. Yes. Or like walking, think of it like walking, right? Can you imagine a baby not being allowed to walk? Those muscles will not develop in the proper way. That's right. Yeah. Once they're adult. And studying this would be really important for women struggling to breastfeed or who can't breastfeed because then we can make bottles that are helping her baby, you know, come up with these, these trainings. So, so interesting. You know, someone might be like, why would this be important? You've just listed like 50 reasons. (laughs) Like why is this so important? So, okay. But here's where the lack in research comes in. Okay. We decided that we're going to build a model, a bottle that models the breast more closely. Uh huh. And so we went to the literature and we tried to see what is the internal anatomy of the breast look like so that we can build it, our bottle based on the actual numbers from women and the properties of the breasts, right? They're not hard, but how soft are they? Mm-hmm. Um, and Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> 
What? Did you see where this is going? <laughs> I do. There was one study in 2005 where they used ultrasound to see what the internal anatomy of the breast was while the mother was lactating. And before that, 1840 was the last time that somebody tried to look at the anatomy of the breast and quantify things. My God. I'm not surprised, but I'm disappointed. Yes. And again, there's this disconnect between the medical establishment and the, and the literature and the, and the scientific community. I went to a friend who's a radiologist. He says, Oh, of course we know what the inside of the breast looks like. I look at them all the time. Like, yeah, but do you know them to the extent where you can build a model that has the same dimensions and physical properties? We don't know that. Mm -hmm. And as a scientist and as a woman and as a mother, that's unacceptable to me. And now a quick word from our sponsors. If you're looking to give superpowers to your care team and scale your operations while delivering the best digital clinic experience, then listen up. Today, I want to introduce you to Nabla, a company I've known for over a year now that's building an impressive AI assistant for healthcare professionals. It's allowing them to spend less time on administrative tasks and more time caring for their patients. Nabla does this by providing messaging, video consultation, and scheduling modules augmented with AI capabilities that automate tasks like consultation note-taking, patient record updating, triaging, and asynchronous follow-ups. On average, it cuts the time spent by physicians on filling out clinical notes by half. And who wouldn't want that? It's used by digital clinics all over the world, including multiple femtech companies. Whether you're a newly launched digital clinic or an established one, Nabla offers full-stack communication solutions as well as bespoke integration with existing tech infrastructures. If you want to see what it looks like, make sure to try Nabla for free by signing up at www.nabla.com. That's Nabla, N-A-B-L-A.com. It's digital care, superpowered. And now back to the interview. You know, I think you really um, embody the femtech movement, which is we see the rise in new solutions corresponding to the rise of women in STEM. And, you know, some people may ask, why is that? Right. Like and it's I think it's you are literally one of the case studies, which is you are a scientist trained to ask questions, trained to be curious, right? Trained to know how to do the scientific method of looking at the literature, right? Like you have all this training. And then you had this experience of being pregnant, right? You had this yeah. experience of breastfeeding. And we often ask questions about things that were show up in our lives that we get curious about. And if uh, scientists historically were all men who never were pregnant themselves, those questions may not have arisen for them. And so therefore was never like something they pursued. And so you really are embodying like, why is femtech a thing now? And it's like, well, because now we have women who are scientists who are getting pregnant and saying, hey, what about this? looking it up and realizing, uh, wait, there's no data. Are you kidding me? And then like, we also are now in a, a, a wave of empowerment, right? Where we're like, not only is that disappointing, it's unacceptable. And by the way, we're going to do something about it. Right. So it's like all these factors coming into play. So tell us, you know, what, what are you doing about it? You're, you have a, a laboratory. Tell us a little bit about, you know, where you're currently at and, um, specifically what you're studying. 
Yeah, so I'm at the University of San Diego, which is a primarily undergraduate institution. That means that I don't have graduate students or postdocs. Um, it's me in the lab with a lot of undergraduate students. And we do experiments um, using an animal model because it's very hard to get samples from um, humans, obviously. And what we're trying to do is actually validate some of these ideas about what happens to the musculoskeletal system during pregnancy and during lactation. And again, because I'm an integrative biologist, I like to ask these questions at multiple levels. So what happens at the level of isolated tissues? What happens at the level of two tissues working together, like the muscle and the tendon? And what happens for the whole organism? Do animals move differently when they're pregnant? Do they move differently when they are um, lactating? Wow. And um... <laughs> I mean, I think they do, right? But I bet there's not a study that's proving it, right? So, exactly. And what is really has been very, very cool um, is that we're finding some surprising things, very surprising things. And I'll I'll give you guys um, a little preview here on a study that's going to come out early next year. One of the things that we're finding is that there isn't a common trend for all pregnant animals that there's a lot of individual in the variation, both before pregnancy and during pregnancy. And again, as a, as a person that's kind of entrepreneurially minded, my question is, hmm, how would I separate those people? Mm -hmm. How can I identify what that person, each person, um, person's experience is like if there is so much inter-individual uh, mm -hmm. variation? Okay, so that's one thing that we're finding. The other thing that we're finding is that lactation has a much more profound effect on muscles and tendons than pregnancy itself. What? That's surprising. Very surprising. Again, it's one of those things that is anecdotally known within physical therapists. Mm. For example, if you tell a physical therapist that you have um, wrist problems and you suspect carpal tunnel syndrome, they'll ask you, are you breastfeeding? And if they, if you say yes, they'll say, you should just stop. And then carpal tunnel goes away. Okay. Again, one of those things that has never been documented experimentally or scientifically, but is known by the medical um, sort of care folks. Okay. And so that, that's what we're finding. That yes. wrist pain is due to holding the baby. It's not some kind of like hormone thing, right? Or we don't it know. It is. It is. So what, what's happening is that the tissues change their their uh, mechanical properties. So the thing that we said earlier that we expect um, tendons and ligaments to become softer during pregnancy, and that's why we strain our, our, our ankles, yeah. that seems to be happening more during lactation and not during pregnancy. Wow. Could this relate to prolapse as well? Because that's like all the tendons and ligaments and things holding stuff up. Totally, totally. Again, there's been so much focus on the effects of pregnancy and hormones on pregnancy that we kind of um, ignored the effects of lactation. Wow. And if I may, if I may, as a mother again, being being asked or being advised that breastfeeding my baby for uh, a year put an incredible pressure on me as a mother mm. to do that. 
to leave spaces where decisions were being made, experiments were being run, conversations were had to go pump milk to breastfeed my baby. Yeah. And then finding out that we don't have this basic scientific knowledge to explain what happens to my body when I'm making these sacrifices. Again, as a scientist and a mother, that was just infuriating. Yes. Well, you know, and I, I usually like to do this earlier, but this has been so fascinating. Can we just take a moment to kind of break down what we're talking about when you say musculoskeletal, yes. you know, like, so let's get a little bit of basics because we don't have all scientists listening. We have some common folk, right? Um, shout out to Gabby. She works on, uh, cow farms in New Hampshire. She's like one of my, like my, um, uh, profiles of, you know, listeners that I like to, you know, keep in mind. So let's break down, like when you're talking about what, what is skeletal muscle? What is, what's a tendon? What's a ligament? Like just kind of give us the 411 on that. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. Okay. So most of our body's made up of skeletal muscle. Those are the muscles that move our body. Um, and they're muscles that, um, work at will, so to speak. So it's not that they have a pattern on their own and they do their thing, like the cardiac muscle, like the heart muscle mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. And it's different from the muscles that uh, dilate our pupils, for example, that react on their own again, mm-hmm. um, through the nervous system, of course, but it's not voluntary. Um, and in general, those muscles are called skeletal muscles because what they move, what they're pulling against is the skeleton. Okay. And so a muscle will shorten, produces force as it shortens, and then is connected to the skeleton via tendons. Mm -hmm. And tendons are rope-like structures that are just basically very, they're like rubber bands. So if you pull on them, there's tension in them. So imagine pulling on something that is very stiff. That's one type of experience and sensory feedback versus if you're pulling on something that is very uh, soft, that's a different type of feedback. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the movement will be different if the properties of the tendons are different. Yeah. Ligaments now hold two bones that are next to each other together. Got it. And so with respect to pregnancy and reproduction, often what we think about are the ligaments that, um, hold the pubis together. The two sides of the pubis, which is our pelvis, uh, and that often needs to be enlarged in order for the birth canal to get wider and the baby to come through. I have a crazy question. Are you did you just say that our entire our hips are not connected in one giant bone? They're two different bones? Correct. <laughs> I definitely thought our hips were one giant like little bowl of hip. I didn't realize we have a left hip and a right hip that are connected by ligaments, right? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Learning. I love learning. Okay. Keep, keep telling me what else. (laughs) Basic anatomy. I'm I'm a geneticist in my defense. (laughs) Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. If you talk DNA, I would be lost. Um, so yeah, those are the basic structures that I study. Um, And like I said before, what interests me was what happens when the material properties of these tissues change. So how stretchy something is, Mm -hmm. um, how long it takes for it to recover its original shape. Uh, When we're talking about movement and forces, um, those things really matter on what the overall pattern of movement is going to look like. Yeah. For the breast, there's is there muscle in the breast? There's like your pectoral muscle, right? 
Yes, that's not inside the breast itself. So what okay. interests me there is because the tissue surrounding the parts that make milk. So mm-hmm. here's another anatomy lesson. Um, the breast itself is a combination of fat and connective tissue. So a bunch of collagen strings holding together fat. And then on top of it is a network of tubes where around... Um, And at the end of the tubes are little bubbles called alveoli. And that's where the milk is produced. Aren't that the same in your lungs? They look very similar to lungs. Exactly. Yes. And so the milk is released slowly into the ducts. And then there's um, a different kind of tissue that squeezes it out when there is a signal outside of the mother. That's the letdown reflex that a lot of women might recognize. And then the baby gets the milk based on how much it suckles. So how hard it pushes down on the breast and how much suction it produces to get it out. Mm. Okay. Can I tell you one more fascinating piece of science? Obviously. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we know that, um, salt, I mean, the interaction between a soft material and fluid depends on the material properties of those two things. What we also know is that women have different material properties of their breasts. And we've known this for a long time because we know that women with stiffer breasts tend to get cancer more frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now here's where breastfeeding comes into play. And where I'm fascinated because it's a sign that mechanics is so important in this process. There is a group of women in Hong Kong in fishing villages who traditionally breastfeed only from the right breast. Okay. What a great experiment. Like as a scientist, you're like, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So somebody did this back in 1977. Um, and they found that there is a higher incidence of carcinomas on the left breast, the one that is not breastfed on. Oh my gosh. So you know that that effect is local because if it was hormonal, hormones run through the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. They would affect all the tissues evenly. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the mechanical interaction between the baby and the mother's breasts that changes its susceptibility to cancer. And I mean, once again, like that's not only a message for breastfeeding, but it's also a message for how do we innovate for the women who are trying to breastfeed who can't or, you know, it's just not possible or whatever. Right. Like, how do we preserve her health um, based on this fact that it looks like breast cancer is increased rate of risk? Do you have any hypothesis as to why that would be? Yeah, I think there's an intense remodeling happening in the breast. Because remember, the breast does not have a single anatomy from the time we become women to the time that uh, we die during pregnancy and then different stages of lactation, our breasts change their anatomy. They're constantly remodeling. Mm. And so we know already that um, tissues remodel differently when they're under different force regimes. Mm. And so, in fact, there is a whole field of um, 
cancer mechanobiology or physical oncology, as it's called, where they study this interaction between the mechanical properties of tissues and cancer cells, but they do it at a very molecular and cellular level. I'm interested again, like you said, what can we do for the whole woman? What mm-hmm. kind of solutions can we offer them? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and again, I come back to the prolapse because I, my sister is dealing with that right now. She's had her second child and, you know, she's experiencing some of this stuff. And a lot of her doctors are like, oh, well, when, once pregnant, you know, you just need to wait a little while, your hormones will balance out and everything will tighten. And she's like, what does that actually mean? Like, what do you mean it'll just tighten, you know? And her and I just, chatting and dialoguing and hypothesizing as to why, but it's like, somebody should definitely come together and like, and she's like, yeah, actually it does feel a little bit better now. You know, some weeks have passed and I am feeling a little bit better, but it's like, we should know, right? (laughs) Like she's breastfeeding. Is it because she's breastfeeding that things are getting tighter? Right? Like, or is it because like, what activities is she doing? That's helping that do that, you know, versus all of her physicians that are like, gynecologists and pelvic floor therapists saying like, just give it time. It's like, well, what is happening in that time? And what are we doing that's successful and not successful? Yeah. Yeah. And there are some pioneers who are actually studying this. Um, Shout out to Dr. Mariana Alperin at University of California, San Diego, who has a lab that studies exactly what you just said. Oh, really? She's a pelvic floor OBGYN and surgeon. um, And she also has a research lab. And she's asking exactly these questions. What exactly is happening? Because it's muscles and connective tissues that are holding together our pelvic floor. Yep. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, there's women out there, but again, it's only women. And that is unacceptable. Mm, yeah, we, you know, we're almost at time. And so I did want to talk about, I could just talk about science with you all day, but yes. I did want to talk to you as an academic, you know, as a researcher with a laboratory, what's your experience been like in terms of getting grants for this stuff? Like, have you gotten pushback? Like this is not important or, you know, I mean, you've studied how do fish swim in the water? <laughs> like, was it easier to get money for that versus this, you know, kind of give us some of your experience just yeah. as a scientist. Yeah, it really was actually, there's been a a fair amount of pushback, but I think because of the time we're in, like you said, there is a conversation going on out there um, and I can draw arguments from this collective movement Mm -hmm. that we have. Um, Some of the arguments I've gotten that this is a niche market um, and we don't, uh, it it doesn't matter. Um, It wouldn't have a big impact. Um, from the National Institutes of Health, uh, I get bounced back between the Musculoskeletal Institute and the National Institute for Child and um, Maternal Health because they're trying to decide who should be studying this. Mm. Right? Who do you um, think should be, or should there be another entity? Um, there needs to be a National Institutes of Women's health. Yeah. It seems obvious, right? (laughs) Yeah. We really do. We need our own pot of money to study this stuff so that we don't have people being like, Oh, who does it belong to? It's like, yeah, I only, I only solve problems once I know it's a problem. Oh, I only, you know, provide evidence for problems, but if nobody's been looking all this time. Yeah. Right. So yeah, we definitely need that. And then again, this femtech in it, wave Mm -hmm. um 
needs academics to do ask basic questions on all fronts, anything related to women with uteruses, without uteruses, women deserve to be listened more. Mm -hmm. And all academics need to do more of that. Yeah. In terms of your institution, I know you're in California, so you're a little bit more progressive there. Right. But like uh, in terms of your colleagues and like, you know, just even getting your laboratory, is this are you one of the hotter labs or are you one of the labs that like you really have to convince students? Are your students all girls? You know, do you have boy students? What's kind of the culture at the university? You know, I I do have a lot of students who want to work with me because I think the issue is so relatable once you think about it. Mm -hmm. And I have both male and female students uh, and I enjoy working with both of them. I really enjoy um, with the female students. I feel like they gain a lot more of their own voice as scientists because they're allowed to talk about things that might one day um, affect them directly. Mm -hmm. And so this is another study that I have planned as a, as a educator, because a lot of my work is also teaching um, is do women in STEM actually gain a lot more confidence and sense of belonging in STEM once we start talking about women's health and wellness? Ooh. It's a two-way street. Yeah. Right. And so that's a study that we have planned for the next couple of years. Um, if you had unlimited funding, what is something that you would study in terms of female anatomy and skeletal muscle? Or maybe other things. I don't know. Yeah. Ah, oh, unlimited funding sounds fabulous, but also terrifying. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would just study, I would study more the development of what happens to the rest of our body that is not directly linked to the reproductive organs mm-hmm. throughout our life. I have mm-hmm. two daughters. One of them is going through puberty now. And I wish I could tell her more about what's happening to her body. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish there were better um, symptom tracking apps for teenage girls that would educate them on what's happening to their own body, educate them on their reproductive rights um, and getting and preparing them for the journey that's ahead. Instead of I, you go through it and then you look back and, and you have to find out by, on your own. Yeah. What's happening. Um, other fun things that I would study have to do with the voice, with our voice. There was this one study that said that female mice have a higher pitched voice um, because it um, it makes their offspring feel less threatened. Oh, interesting. But now, yeah, now as a, as a, what I'm seeing is that a lot of connective tissues, which um, the vocal cords are as well, just change during pregnancy and during lactation. Is this just a byproduct? And what downstream evo- co-evolutionary things have happened because our voice changes? Um, that's, that's just the nerd in me that just wants to keep asking questions. I love that. I Yeah, my PhD is in evolutionary genetics. So I'm always like, what's the benefit? What's the fitness here? Like it's not by accident, rarely is. Although we are human and evolution is definitely dampened a little bit considering we like, like I always use the argument, if you're 
have really thick glasses, you probably wouldn't be surviving and reproducing in the wild, right? Like we've allowed certain traits to continue because we have like these um, tools now to allow you to live your life and eat and reproduce and stuff. So there's a little bit of a cat, a little asterisk there, but most things it's like, especially with this stuff, it's like, no, there's been many, 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 many centuries of figuring out what's the best purpose of this. Right. Um, Nicole, this is so fun. You're so fascinating. I was so excited to have you on the show. I want to ask you our two last questions that our listeners love. The first one is we have a lot of, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs that listen. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Uh, exercise, exercise for women, uh, that is targeted then again, to what is happening to their body in whatever reproductive cycle they are, puberty, um, different stages of pregnancy or lactation. Please, please help us out here. Um, that's the one that I'm going to leave. And the other is diagnostics. Mm-hmm. I want more diagnostics about what is my body? What type am I? Don't enough with this one type fits all. Mm-hmm. We know that's not true for women. Yeah. Uh, in the exercise thing, actually just, um, our accountant had a C-section and she was telling me like, cause everyone who works with Femtech Focus at some point now is like coming circles back and says, Oh my God, this is applying to my life. Right. Like we had a board director who has breast cancer. Right. So all of a sudden, like she was already passionate, but now she's like, Oh my God, they have no idea what they're doing. Like in my life is on the line. So this accountant is like, uh, I had the C-section and they just told me to go back exercising after six weeks. And she's like, I have this giant incision through my muscles, through a, she's like, I'm really scared. It's just going to pop open. Like, but everyone's just telling me to go back to normal exercising. She's like, I just can't imagine that that's really what I should do. Right. And so she's not yeah. because she's scared. And so I, that's what I hear. I mean, I know exercise in general, but like really specific examples, like when your torso is cut open for a cesarean, like at what point do you go back to exercise? What exercise should you do? What when should you avoid? Like, what should you watch out for instead of just, Oh, go back, just go ahead. Just fine. You know, it's like, yes. yeah. Show me the science on which you made that recommendation. Yeah. Show me the science. Yeah. Yeah. And our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? It needs more uh, interactions with academia. I love, love, love what so many femtech companies are doing where they're going out and demanding uh, data and collecting it themselves. But that cannot be the that burden should not be on femtech companies. Mm-hmm. And I want to see this interaction between academia and femtech innovators. And I'm telling you that once that um, uh, that connection is made and it becomes a two-way street, we're mm-hmm. going to see an incredible boom in this industry. Oh my God, there's going to be so much economic growth. Like there's so going to be much. so much opportunity. There's going to be so many jobs made. Like because we have all these founders who are engineers yeah. or, you know, whatever they are, and they're fundraising from investors, which actually what they should be getting is grants because investors don't want to pay for R&D necessarily, yes. but that's what grants are supposed to be for. But the grant system needs a women's health institute so that we have a pot of money. Um, But I actually just heard from somebody else. They said, you know, we really need to, that's a, that's a, a, a huge um, hole, which I hear as opportunity in our pipeline of IP from the patent offices at academics, academic 
you know, institutions, translating that into businesses. Do you have any, you know, as a person who probably thinks about this a lot, do you have any ideas um, about how we can close that gap between academia and entrepreneurship? Well, interesting that you asked that, Brittany. The (laughs) National Science Foundation actually started thinking about these types of questions in their technology, innovation, and partnerships directorate, TIPS. And they put out a call for innovation centers Mm -hmm. last summer. And their idea is exactly this, to bridge these gaps between different types of institutions working on an innovation field. And we at the University of San Diego actually put in a proposal to focus on femtech where we're going to bridge this gap between centers whose job and expertise is to generate knowledge, academic institutions, um, institutions whose job and expertise is to do workforce development for this field specifically, um, and do this cutting edge research in all fields, including IP. How will the IP be distributed, right? Mm -hmm. What will incentivize both partners working together. Um, what happens when some of that knowledge comes from non-traditional places? Because women, if they're not being cared for by the medical establishment adequately, somebody else is taking care of them. Mm-hmm. And those are often uh, people with cultural knowledge. So these are the type of ideas that um, I think the National Science Foundation and this kind of establishment that brings people together, an engine yeah. like that, would be able to um, bring progress in. Sounds like you and I have to go to D.C. Uh, and knock on some doors and be like, listen, <laughs> hey, y'all, we have something <laughs> that you need to focus on. Um, Nicole, you're incredible. I love this. I love nerding out with you. What you're doing is so important. And, um, I personally, I'm sad for the fish, but I'm really happy for women that you (laughs) now study our muscles. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for giving me the time and this platform to talk about what I'm passionate. Thank you, Brittany, for the work that you're doing. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Nicole Danos. Be sure to learn more about her research at NicoleDanosPhD.net. Be sure to subscribe to the Femtech Focus newsletter, join our virtual community, and follow us on social media. Share the show with a friend and continue to advocate for women's health innovation, because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.